Montebello Church Sermons. Morning. I am super happy to be here. I am super thankful uh, to be able to uh, just uh, be with you and share scripture with you and to just give you a little bit of background before um, we start talking about Jesus. I, would, I just want to thank those of you who have just prayed for us, sent us uh, glorious gifts. Those of you who don't know, um, basically COVID ran through the all household like a freight train, decimating everyone, not really, but um, it, it was hilarious because uh, the originator of COVID in our household was Lily. She got COVID. We all stayed away from her. Um, I couldn't go into work. I had to, uh, you know, get free money staying at home, you know, watching TV, doing whatever, uh, because they didn't want me to infect anybody. Um, I actually never got it when Lily had it, but then uh, Eloise got it kind of think I got it, uh, but then uh, uh, Kate got it definitely, then I got tested and found out that yes, I indeed I did get it, and then Sam got it, and he didn't even realize he had it, he was, he was totally cool. What's hilarious is Kate and I got it a week after we got the uh, vaccine, and so it was, uh, I, you know, I got, got that stick in my arm, and I'm like, oh, okay, so now I can, you know, bullets will bounce off me, well, no. There's a, there's a week-long gestation period, uh, two-week-long, uh, and we had, I was a week into the gestation period and got COVID after getting the, uh, the um, vaccine. I'm not bitter, <laughs> but uh, all that to say, uh, super thankful. Uh, this morning, we are going through Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 7 and 13, I got to give one more caveat, 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 that's the British terminology, caveat of, uh, before I get it. it, it's interesting, we, for those of you who, who might not know, you know, we kind of get scripture handed down to us, you know, we're going through Ephesians, but then whoever's preaching kind of gets their bit of scripture that they're doing. I got this scripture and literally two days later, I had a conversation with Dwight and he said, you know, uh, you know, going through that scripture, it's kind of loose. You, don't, you can kind of mention the scripture. You don't really have to preach on it. And uh, I was like, wow, okay. It, that kind of made me a little nervous. And then I read the scripture. And I was like, oh, okay. Now I know what he's talking about. Not that this scripture is bad, okay? But it is, it's on a hinge point between some really good verses about the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, and then Paul's beautiful prayer for the Ephesians, where he says, man, my prayer is that you, you just know the height, the depth, the breadth, the width, and the God, of the love of God, which surpasses understanding, and it's this deep, heartfelt prayer for the Ephesian people and really for the entire body of Christ, and right stuck in between that is this scripture. And so I, I would like to read through it, and the great thing about some obscure 
scripture that you get sometimes is that's in between all the good stuff is you overlook it, but then when you read through it, you realize how beautiful and how dense God's word truly is because within the context of verses 7 through 13, you get the whole of the gospel and you get a path in which how we as believers, as Christ's church, can live out that gospel. Let me just stop there. We'll read it and we'll move on. Ephesians 3, 7 through 13, it says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is in fact your glory. Woo, that's dense. How do we encompass all of the gospel into these six or so verses? We have to ask ourselves five, probably, probably more, but I, so I, I reduced it down to about five questions. Question one, what gospel is Paul even talking about in verse seven? Why does Paul refer to himself as the least of all the saints? What is the role of the church in all of this? How do we fulfill that role? And how do we not lose heart as we fulfill that role? Now, I know all of you are just writing those down. For that small percentage that aren't writing this down, it's just going to stay up there. So you'll, you'll get to see the questions and you'll kind of know where we're going. But let's start with question one. What gospel is Paul referring to? Because he doesn't say the gospel, he says this gospel. Of this gospel I was made minister. Paul is talking broadly about the gospel, but he's reducing it down to the essence of the fact that the gospel is not just the message of salvation, but it's the message of salvation to the world, to everyone. Going back to verse 6, he says it plainly. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of this promise in Christ Jesus through this gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that 
It's for everyone. Yeah, praise Jesus. The people of God are no longer just Jews. And that's not to say that Jews are, are terrible, horrible people. No, they're awesome. They're part of the people of God. We don't want to be racist here. Jews are awesome. So are Puerto Ricans. So are Cubans. So are Mexicans. So are African Americans. And they are all free to enter into the same gospel, the same salvation through Jesus Christ. More importantly, Gentiles don't become Christians when they become like Jews. Jews don't become Christians when they act like Gentiles. People become Christians when they meet Jesus. And that's an important point to understand. Our differences stop at the cross. If someone claims Jesus is their savior, there is nothing that should keep you from fellowship. That's what Paul is talking about. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ through this gospel. Think of it this way. It's as if Jesus is a magnet and we're all BBs. And you turn the magnet on and it's like we all go and we are all together in Jesus. Question two. And this is a little more important than we might take it, that we might understand at the beginning. Why does Paul refer to himself as the least of the saints? We have to remember that Paul the great apostle first began his career as the great persecutor of the church. Before Paul was Paul, the apostle, Paul was Saul, the Pharisee. And Acts, was it Acts chapter 6 or 8, tell us about the fact that Paul was, or at the time Saul, Saul was there when Stephen was murdered. Saul was there going into the houses of the believers, dragging them out and putting into him, them into prison. And so when Saul refer, Paul refers to himself, man, I'm going I'm to butcher that the entire time. When Paul refers to himself as the least of the saints, he is always going back to that point. Before he met Jesus, he was a persecutor of Jesus' people. And he, he most emphasizes this. He doesn't come with guilt. He doesn't come with shame. Rather, he comes with this reflection and this joy and in essence saying, look, look where I'm at and look who I used to be. He sums it up. You can't sum it up better than this. In 1 Timothy 1. If you have time to just open there, open to 1 Timothy 1, 
starting at verse 12 and just worship with me and listen to Paul's heart and maybe put yourself in Paul's place. I thank, thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is just speaking our hearts back to us. Who here has not met Jesus and said, look at who I used to be and look at what Jesus has made me? And more importantly, Paul emphasizes here that he wasn't just saved and pushed aside. He was saved and he considers it a joy and an honor and a privilege and a glory that God didn't just save him but rose him up and gave him purpose and a call and a privilege to serve and suffer for his sake. And that gift wasn't just for him, it was for us. And that's, why is it so important that Paul tells us that he's the least of the saints? It's because it's the least, it's the most unqualified. It's the most broken that does some of the best work for Jesus. It's as if God has called all people to himself and then elevated them into positions of authority and power and grace and healing. All for his glory. So he's drawn us to himself and he's raised us up with him. So in light of all that, what is the role then of the church. Verse 10 tells us, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities of the heavenly places. When God gathers everyone, regardless of political stance, ethnicity, gender, 
to himself and then elevates them to followers of him, what does that say to this world? God puts us at a place where we are sending a message to the principalities, to the spirits who oversee this world, and we and it's it is an expression. We, as the body of Christ, are an expression of God's wisdom to those authorities. Whoa! That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God looks like a group of people who love each other regardless of who they are, where they come from, and it is a group of broken people who have been transformed by the grace of God in order to do the work of God. And we are witnesses to the powers and the principalities and the people of this dark world. That's who we are called to be. It's amazing. The church is described in so many different ways. In 1 Corinthians, we're called the body of Christ. And we think of that you know, metaphorically, oh, we're kind of the body of Christ. Paul doesn't think of it that way. He thinks that everybody here is functioning in some role that's going to exhibit Christ to the world so that when the world looks at the church, they're supposed to say, oh, that's Jesus. Second Corinthians, Corinthians t tells us that we are the temple of God. The temple is the place where people go to be forgiven, to meet God, to have their prayers answered, to be blessed, to be in relationship with God. Who is that? It's the church. We are the temple of God. We are the place where the world can come and meet Jesus. We're the people that show Jesus. We're the people where people can come and meet Jesus. Second Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. We're the group of people where the world can come to. We make the sacrifices. We bring the forgiveness, not in our own strength. But we deliver forgiveness because we've received forgiveness as we deliver the message of Jesus. We're his body, we're his temple, we are his holy nation, and we are his priesthood. That's, who, that's the role. Think about that. I hate to keep doing all these hand motions, but think about this. Through Christ, we have been gathered together and we have been raised up to reflect Jesus out to the world. That's the role of the church. Paul literally summed it up in these six verses. 
How do we fulfill that role? He makes it real simple. In verse 12, he says, We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. How do we fulfill the role? We ask God for help. And we confidently ask God for help. We're not going to an angry boss asking for a raise. We're going to a loving father who delights in his children and we're asking for help to fulfill his call in our lives. We have confidence and authority and an ability to obey Jesus because he has empowered us with forgiveness with the Holy Spirit, with his holy scriptures, and with one another. We want for nothing. And through all of that, at the end, Paul says, don't lose heart. How do we not lose heart? You would think after hearing all of that about how we are called to him, how we are elevated into positions of authority and ability and uh, service and that we are given every bit of power and ability to accomplish this role through the Holy Spirit, you would think we wouldn't lose heart. And yet he says, don't lose heart. It's easy to lose heart. We can have all that and still lose heart. How do we not? Verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So when Paul says that, he's doing a couple things. When Paul says, My suffering is your glory, He's saying, what I am going through, one is for you. Two, it's going to glorify Jesus. Did I say two things? It's a few things. Let's just say it's a few things. But he's also inviting us into his suffering. And he's saying, this is how the people of God function. Suffering to them isn't, it isn't something to endure. It's not something to grumble about. It's not something to complain about. It is something to take and understand and endure with joy because you know it is fulfilling his call, which is to be Jesus to the world. And he's saying, hey, what I'm going through, hey, visions, what I'm going through, it's your, it's like your treasure. You can go back and say, oh man, you don't think God's good? Look at what Paul's enduring for him. 
We're so proud of Paul because what he is, what he is doing for our sake. And he's setting an example for us. That's kind of a hard word. Because for many of us, we look at suffering as bad. We complain about when we don't get what we want. We complain about when things are hard. We maybe think that God is singling us out and judging us. And none of that is true. Man, he calls us to suffer with joy because remember, who sees it? The authorities, the principalities of this dark world, the people of this dark world, the people who are heading toward destruction see us joyous in our suffering and they say, wow, what's the matter with these guys? And I'm not saying it's hard, not hard. Man, when I was at home suffering with joy with COVID, complaining about how I had to sit at home while the government was giving me money for not going to work, I was getting pretty bitter. But that's not who we are as the people of God. The people of God can be joyous in suffering and delight in suffering not because of suffering, but because suffering leads us closer and closer to Jesus. And we can look at those other people who are suffering, and yes, we can pray for them, but we can also say, look what they're doing for Jesus. Awesome. That way of thinking is counter to this world. It is foreign. And yet, that is the natural response of someone who is in love with Jesus. But more importantly, Paul is summing up the passage in saying, this suffering is not mine alone to bear. It's not my glory only to receive. It is your glory. We share in it. And this is the most important part. I would argue that this is more important than us having the Holy Spirit. This is more important than us having Scripture, although you need Scripture and you need the Holy Spirit to truly understand this. But God has called us to suffer, to love, to be together, together. God has called us to be together, together. We cannot live out God's call in our lives alone. That's counterculture. I grew up thinking 
My faith is my own. If I'm not doing something right, I need to deal with it. I need to worry about my Bible reading, my prayer time, my work at church, my whatever. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. What are we? We are parts of a body. We are bricks in a temple. Nothing functions when people are living out an individual faith. We're called to live out a corporate faith where we love one another, meet with one another, grow with one another. What's the passage? Is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another? If you're not being sharpened by one another, you end up being pretty dull. Man, Dan Mayhew has done a great job of encouraging us to meet together in small groups. And if you're meeting together in small groups, man, that's awesome. If you're not, I encourage you to do that. As someone who likes my individual faith and has a difficult time being around people, that might be an that might be a little overboard. I like being around people, but you know, you know, like my wife is an extrovert, and so she she gets built up when she's with people. She gets more energized. I am introverted in the sense that I love being around people until I don't. Okay, I I clock in. Okay. For, for Kate, it's vacation. I clock in, okay? But as someone who is very individualistic and tries to take care of his own life and his own family and his, his own faith, I am as convicted as probably most of you that I need to be in fellowship, meeting with people, confessing, building up, encouraging not just for my sake. It's not even just for our sakes. It is for the world. We need to meet together in love, in grace, in fellowship, not for our sake, but for the world's sake. Because they see who Jesus is through us. That's in scripture, folks. They see who Jesus is through us and when we are individualistic, when we are selfish, when we are complaining, when we are not enduring suffering with joy, when we are doing none of the things that God has elevated us to do through the grace of his forgiveness and his love and his delight, 
We are sending a message of who Jesus is to the world. And that message is, Jesus doesn't care about me. He's bitter. He's hateful. He's all about himself. It is important for the call of the believer to understand the need for one another. Not only for our sake, but for the world. That's what we're called to. Man, we got all of that out of Ephesians 3, 7 through 13? Yeah, it's all there. Amazing. Dan Mayhew's been encouraging us to meet together. I would like to take it a step further and encourage us to figure out ways to serve together. Because that is our honor and our privilege before the Lord. That's why he brought us together and that's why he elevated us into his family, his church, so that we could, by grace, fulfill his call and be him to the nations. Isn't that amazing? What a crazy, amazing way Jesus created to get his message out. Us. Wow. Praise. Praise God for it. And how do we live out a gospel of unity as broken people saved by grace? So the world sees who Jesus is by confidently seeking Jesus in prayer through scripture by the Holy Spirit as we joyfully suffer with one another, unified through the blood of Jesus for his glory. Amen. Do you guys realize the depth of what God has called us to as followers of him? Man, I'm not saying that to make us feel guilty. I'm saying, I'm really saying, Dave, you idiot. Do you realize what you have in Jesus and who you have it with? Our calling, our salvation, our fellowship, our family, our inheritance is so much greater than what we've realized certainly what we've lived out. How do we live this out? 
You can't live it out all at once. I can't, I can't go to driving school and then enter into Daytona 500. I can't go to a day of driving school and enter into the Daytona 500. It takes a few years. It takes some practice. It takes some hardship. It takes some determination. It takes some willingness to sacrifice. It takes some help. And that's the most important thing. We have to, as a body of believers, come together and walk the path together. And there's times where some of us are going to lag behind. And there's times where some of us are going to jump farther ahead than they're supposed to. And it's our job as the body of believers to lovingly pull people back or bring people forward. And we never do it by ourselves because that's useless. We do it with one another. I don't know how we do it practically here at Montevilla, but I know that we have praying elders and praying pastors who are praying about this very thing and guiding us toward it and calling us to walk in obedience, not to them, but to him. And so I encourage you, don't go home and forget about this message. Not because I talk good, but because this message didn't come from me. It came from Jesus. It's in his word. It's sprinkled with the Holy Spirit. And it's what he wants for us. That we can be gathered together, uplifted in his name, fulfilling his roles as messengers to the world, and doing that while joyfully suffering the way he did, the way Paul did, that his message might be proclaimed, that might, he might be glorified, and that we might receive his blessing, which is his kingdom expanding. First in Montevilla, then in Portland, then in Gresham, then in Sandy, then in Wilsonville, then in Beaverton, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. That's Christ's vision for us. May that be our vision for us. Let me shut up and pray. Father, we just give you the honor and the glory and the praise. Lord, you have not forced us to do anything, but you've called us into your loving presence 
you have, instead of condemnation, you have brought forgiveness and delight and fellowship. Lord, may we come away not guilt-ridden, not shame-filled, but joyously excited to see how you want to work in your people, your congregation at Montevilla for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. May we delight in thinking about how we can live out who Jesus is in our neighborhoods, in our fellowship, in our family, that you might be glorified and built up. Lord, my prayer is your prayer that this world can look at us at Montevilla and say, oh, that's what Jesus looks like. That you may be honored and glorified and that you may give hope to the nations. Lord, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Montevilla Church Sermons.